the mind. A vast network of billions of neurons connected by synapses, where electrical and chemical messages in the quantillions travel across our neural network in just nanoseconds. Within that complexity is the makeup of who we are as individuals. It's where our thoughts and actions develop, where our personalities form, and where we store our memories and secrets. If we could tap into that network, we could solve crimes and quite possibly even prevent them. But until that day comes, detectives have to analyze and reverse engineer crime scenes to eliminate possibilities to find probability. It's here, in that realm of possibility and probability, that we explore an unusual case in which law enforcement believed a woman was making up acts of stalking, harassment, and physical attacks by an unknown assailant. In fact, all of the reported incidents were thought to be a hoax and a figment of her imagination, until she disappeared. This is episode 42 of They Disappeared, Into Madness, The Disappearance of Cindy James. It was on Thursday, June 8th of 1989, that the body of a 44-year-old nurse named Cindy James was discovered in a patch of overgrown brush outside of an abandoned home in Richmond, British Columbia. She had been hogtied, with her hands and feet bound together with rope behind her back, and a black nylon stocking was wrapped around her neck. She was fully clothed, laying on top of a man-sized blue denim jacket. At the scene, authorities noted graffiti in and around the nearby abandoned home. Inside, Investigators found the word devil spray-painted on a crumbling plaster wall, and the phrase, some bitch died here, was found in orange spray paint on an outdoor fuel tank. It was a strange end to what had become a complicated life, making this scene only a small part of a very complex mystery. To uncomplicate the end of Cindy's life, we need to rewind to the very beginning of this story and move toward her last days and eventually returned back here to what appeared to be a violent crime scene. The story of Cindy James begins with her birth as Cynthia Elizabeth Hack on June 12, 1944, in Oliver, British Columbia. She was the oldest of six children born to Tilly and Otto Hack. Otto was an English teacher and colonel in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Because of this, Cindy spent a considerable amount of her teen years growing up and living in Ottawa, where the RCAF National Defense Headquarters was located. It was during this time in her life, she confided in friends and in her journal, of her strict upbringing, some of which included, quote, corporal punishment. In 1962, when Cindy was 18, she enrolled in a Vancouver nursing school. That same year, her father re-enlisted in the Air Force and relocated the family to France. Cindy would remain in Canada and visit them during the holidays. During the times that they were separated, Cindy wrote letters to her family. In one such letter, she informed them she had gotten engaged to another nursing student she interned with. However, Cindy never told her family his name, and no one ever met or spoke with him. In subsequent letters, she informed her family that this new man in her life had been diagnosed with cancer. And in a final follow-up letter, Cindy told her family the man had committed suicide while they were on a ski trip together. 
It would be learned later that none of this information could be verified and was likely untrue. Why Cindy would make up such a story is another small piece of a larger puzzle located somewhere in the vast, complicated network of her mind. In 1965, while she was interning, Cindy met a psychiatrist named Roy Makepeace. At the time, Roy was 39 years old and married with two daughters. Despite the 18-year age difference between he and Cindy, Roy left his wife and family to be with her, and when Cindy graduated from nursing school the following year, her and Roy got married. Cindy would land a job as a pediatric nurse at Vancouver General Hospital, the same place Roy worked as the director of health services. In 1973, Roy left the hospital for a position with a British Columbia utility distributor. Cindy would remain with the hospital another two years, leaving in 1975 for a team coordinator position at the Blenheim House, a day treatment center for children with emotional and behavioral problems. She would work there for 12 years before accepting a nursing position at Richmond General Hospital. In July of 1982, Cindy and Roy separated after 16 years of marriage. What happened shortly afterwards would be the crux of this mystery. Now, depending on your interpretation of the evidence, either Cindy would become the victim of an elaborate seven-year harassment campaign, or she was the mastermind behind one of the most intense stalking hoaxes of all time. It started with phone calls, the first of which occurred in October of 1982, just two months after she separated from Roy. Cindy reported receiving calls that escalated from heavy breathing to direct threats of harm being made against her. In one of those calls, the caller reportedly said, I'll get you one night, Cindy. Cindy contacted the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, who came to her home and suggested she start keeping a list of each call and recommended she enlist her phone number. According to Cindy, after the police left her home that day, her phone rang again, and the voice on the other end called her a quote, fucking bitch, and again said he was going to get her. Over the next several days, more threatening calls occurred. On October 15th, Cindy informed police she had heard someone outside her home, and the next morning she found her porch lights smashed, when she returned home from work that afternoon, she discovered one of her windows had been broken. Police searched her home, but other than the broken window, they found nothing missing and no sign someone had entered the home. Four days later, Cindy contacted police again, telling them someone had slashed one of the pillows in her bedroom. Police asked Cindy if she thought her estranged husband Roy was the one harassing her. She didn't believe he was the one behind it but she did say that Roy had at times been abusive during their marriage. As the harassment continued, Cindy began a friendship with a constable of the Royal Canadian Police named Patrick McBride. McBride had responded to several of Cindy's harassment complaints. At the end of October, McBride, who was in between apartments temporarily moved into Cindy's home, staying with her until December 1st. During that time, Cindy only received one phone call, which was an abrupt hang-up that was traced back to a phone exchange center in Richmond, Vancouver. 
However, no further information was found, and it was eventually believed to be a true missile. Two weeks after McBride left, Cindy reported finding a note outside her home that said, Merry Christmas, with a photo of a woman whose throat had been slashed. After that, the harassment would intensify and become physical and more frightening. On January 27th of 1983, a co-worker of Cindy's named Agnes Woodcock went to Cindy's home for a visit and found Cindy unconscious in her backyard with a nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. When Cindy came to, she told Agnes she had been attacked while walking to her garage. She described two assailants, one of which she said sexually assaulted her with a knife. Cindy was examined by doctors who were unable to confirm evidence of a sexual assault. Afterwards, one of the detectives on her case asked Cindy to see a psychiatrist, which she refused to do, but she did agree to speak with a counselor. Four days later, on February 1st, Cindy relocated to a home in West Vancouver. A week later, she reported receiving another threatening letter, which read, Run, rabbit, run. I'll show you how fucking good I am. Soon. Bang, bang. You're dead. In April of 1983, in an attempt to end the harassment, Cindy relocated again and had her car painted a different color and even hired a private investigator named Ozzy Caban. During this time, due to a lack of evidence, Vancouver police began to doubt Cindy's story and believed she was keeping information from them, noting that she wasn't acting like a normal victim. Just as it seemed Vancouver police were about to wind down their investigation, the most violent attack on Cindy James would take place. On January 30th of 1984, Ozzy Caban, who had given Cindy a two-way radio as a way to stay in communication with him at all times, heard a strange noise over the radio. When Cindy didn't respond, he went to her house where he found her lying unconscious on her living room floor with a knife jammed through the back of her hand. The knife had pierced a bloody note with cut-and-paste letters from magazines which read, quote, Now you must die, cunt. The primary Vancouver police investigator at the scene, a constable named Kayo Ikoma, noted that there was blood smeared in circular patterns on the kitchen floor, as though someone had wiped it, which was odd because in his 10-year career, he had never come across an attempted cleanup at a crime scene with a living victim. When asked to recall what happened, Cindy would tell police a man she thought was her neighbor had come through her back gate and up her stairs. At the last moment, realizing it wasn't her neighbor, she was struck with something the man had in his hand. After this incident, police had Cindy take a lie detector test, which indicated she had passed. However, Cal Hood, the sergeant who administered the test, would later say the results were inconclusive. Over the next month, police began to focus more on Cindy's ex-husband, Roy Makepeace. Questioning him several times in March of that same year, police even had Cindy's father, Otto Hack, meet with Roy while wearing a wire, attempting to get him to confess to the harassment, which he didn't. Instead, Roy theorized the mafia was behind the harassment and told Otto to have police investigate that angle, but nothing came of it and the harassment continued. 
On June 18th of 1984, Ozzy Caban rushed to Cindy's house after she called him and said someone had attacked her and her dog, Heidi. When he arrived, Ozzy found Cindy outside hiding in her garden and would later find Heidi in the basement of Cindy's house with a rope around her neck with a note that said happy birthday and sexually graphic photos included inside of it. More incidents would occur with varying degrees of intensity. Several times, dead cats were discovered in Cindy's yard, and once, a dead cat was found in the stairwell of her home. On July 23rd of 1984, Cindy would claim she was attacked while walking Heidi in a nearby park at around 8.30 p.m. by a bearded man in a van. Cindy said this at around midnight, when she was attempting to enter one of her neighbor's homes, while still having a nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. Ozzy Caban later found Heidi wandering in Dunbar Park, close to Cindy's home. Cindy would be taken to the University of British Columbia Health and Sciences Center, where doctors would discover two puncture marks similar to those caused by a hypodermic needle on the inside of her right arm. After the attack in the park, Cindy continued to report harassing calls, none of which could be traced. The harassment continued into 1985, and in June of that year, it was reported that Cindy was found unresponsive with an empty bottle of pills. As a result, she was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric ward in Vancouver. Cindy would later deny that this was a suicide attempt, and she was released in July. In order to confirm or exclude Roy Makepeace from their investigation, Cindy agreed to let police record a phone call she had with him. During that call, Cindy accused Roy of murdering a man and woman with an axe in 1981 while they were on vacation. This accusation was part of a memory Cindy recalled while under hypnosis while she was hospitalized. Roy denied the accusation and called Cindy insane and said he believed she was involved in some type of revenge fantasy against him. Police would later learn that Cindy's sister, Melanie, was with Cindy and Roy on the vacation they took in 1981 and would also refute Cindy's accusation against Roy. Once again, police were beginning to doubt Cindy. Multiple incidents would occur over the next several months. On August 5th, Cindy called the police to report a fire in her home. Upon arrival, police found burnt newspaper in her living room. The next day, Cindy reported another fire, which upon arrival, authorities found burnt papers scattered in a bathroom. Early in the morning of August 21st, a third fire was reported at Cindy's home. Cindy would claim that she had taken her dog for a walk at 3.15 a.m., and when she returned home, she found a fire burning in a bathroom. Upon inspection, authorities found charred remnants of newspaper, and no signs of forced entry into her home. Afterwards, police set up 24-hour surveillance of Cindy's home. This continued for seven days and ended when nothing happened. In the fall of 1985, the RCMP requested a psychologist named Dr. Anthony Marcus read a full summary of the police reports in Cindy's case. Dr. Marcus also interviewed Cindy twice. At the conclusion of those interviews, Dr. Marcus described Cindy as a borderline personality and someone who is between neurosis and reality, indicating that this could have resulted from a traumatic event in her childhood or adolescence. In his report, he would state that Cindy was, quote, walking a tightrope on the side of life 
and might accidentally kill herself. However, Dr. Marcus wouldn't rule out that an unknown assailant may be involved. But there was one thing he was certain about. Cindy's terror was real. Whether the source of her terror was inside her mind, or a true assailant, was a million-dollar question. On December 1st of 1985, Cindy moved once again. On December 11th, Cindy was found in a ditch nearly four miles away, with a black nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. The harassment continued in a variety of ways from that point on. In 1986, Cindy officially changed her last name from Makepeace to James. Through the rest of 1986, and through to the end of 1987, most of the incidents only involved vandalism of her home. But near the end of October 1988, Cindy was found unconscious in her garage. She was nude from the waist down and had been hogtied with a black nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. Over the course of seven years, the RCMP estimated that over $1 million had been spent investigating Cindy's claims, but they could not corroborate any one of them, leading them to believe she was staging the attacks or making them up entirely. Then, in 1989, something would happen that would quiet the doubts of the RCMP when Cindy James suddenly disappeared. On May 25th of 1989, Cindy vanished after depositing her paycheck at a Bank of Montreal ATM near the Blundell Shopping Center in Richmond, British Columbia. Her car was found in a parking lot at the shopping center later that night. Locked inside her car, police found two bags of groceries. Along with Cindy's purse and keys, they also found a drop of blood on the inside of her driver's side door. Outside the car, police found Cindy's bank card laying on the ground. Two weeks later, Cindy's body would be found just a mile away at that abandoned house. Police originally investigated Cindy's death as a homicide, but later ruled out foul play suggesting Cindy died by suicide or accident by her own hand. Toxicology tests found more than 10 times the lethal dose of morphine in her body, leaving doubts as to the RCMP theory of suicide. How could she have had enough time to administer the drug, leave no evidence of a syringe or container or baggie, and then tie her hands and feet behind her back? The open unanswered questions into Cindy's case and death led to a coroner's inquest in the spring of 1990. The inquest took 40 days with testimony from over 80 witnesses in front of five jurors. The jurors, a bus driver, a retired furnace repair company owner, a housewife, a shop owner, and a property manager, would have the daunting task of trying to unravel the bizarre life and death of Cindy James. During the testimony, a knot expert demonstrated how Cindy could have bound herself within three minutes before the effects of the morphine took place. Roy Makepeace testified during the inquest that he believed Cindy's father, Otto Hack, had physically abused her during her childhood and that she had been molested by one of her brothers. Cindy's sister, Melanie, testified to once finding a glass cutter in Cindy's purse 
as well as syringes. Concluding the inquest testimony, Dr. Marcus spoke of a similar case in Wichita, Kansas, where a woman complained of a series of attacks and threatening notes from an unknown assailant from 1977 to 1981. Police would find a piece of red bandana at the scene of one of the attacks. When this woman was caught in the act of sending herself a threatening letter, the woman said as a young child she had been molested by a neighbor. During that assault, the neighbor stuffed a red bandana down her throat to silence her. In Cindy's case, she had been found four times with a black nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. Perhaps as it was a weapon used against her during a traumatic experience in her childhood. The coroner's inquest into Cindy's death concluded on May 25, 1990, exactly one year after she disappeared. The jurors ruled Cindy died as the result of an unknown event, and her case was formally closed. Roy Makepeace passed away on December 4, 2013, at 87 years old. To date, there are still those out there who believe he was behind Cindy's torment, something he fought against till his last days. This case has the ability to pull you back and forth from believing it was a hoax to a true case of relentless harassment, ending with a question mark. The entire case reminded me of a movie from 1995 called Never Talk to Strangers, where a woman played by Rebecca de Mornay is harassed by an unknown assailant who sends her dead flowers and vandalizes her home, only to later discover she is doing all of it to herself through another personality that she created out of a traumatic childhood event involving her father, which returns us to the place where we began, the mind. Only we know what secrets hide within our neural networks. Unless we are one of those unique individuals who can completely segment and compartmentalize their competing thoughts and personalities to the point that one of them could take over without the primary conscious being aware of it, which is the true definition of a split personality. But even considering that possibility, does Cindy James end up dead of acute drug intoxication, bound with her hands behind her back, with no evidence she had drugs with her? Or were all the answers hidden in one of those billions of neurons deep within her mind? Mm -hmm. 